We are going to be in seven chapters of Exodus here this morning. So, if you have a Bible, open it up to Exodus 25. Uh, one of my good friends, Matt Whitney, is preaching. So we had the privilege of giving Matt Whitney, of all people, seven chapters. So buckle up. Uh, Matt, you're, you're a gifted brother. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for the service that you provide in this body. And go for it, buddy. Exodus chapter 25. We're just going to do the first nine verses um, because you all know how long it takes me to do literally anything. So Exodus chapter 25, and let's read verses 1 through 9 together. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for the setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are with us here today. Your presence is here, and so my prayer is simply that you open our eyes to it, that you allow our hearts to comprehend the width and height and depth and breadth of the love of God, and that this sense of your presence and love would transform us into the people that you desire us to be. So use your servant, I pray, grant that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer, for it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So uh, early on, in the pandemic, I introduced my daughter to the artistry of one Robert Norman Ross. You may know him as Bob Ross. <laughs> Standing here today, I don't quite recall why. I mean, maybe, maybe it had something to do with just wanting a little bit of comfort. Maybe it had to do with the sense of unfolding chaos going on around us, that it seemed like life itself was changing inextricably, that the created order, as we had known it, was shifting dramatically. Maybe it had to do with the fact that, to quote REM, it felt like the end of the world as we knew it. Now, I'm speaking in this dramatic language mostly because I just want to set up our themes for today. Um, because in all honesty, like what I mostly was at the time was just exhausted because I had my three-year-old daughter with me nonstop and I needed some rest. <laughs> and so putting on Bob Ross on autoplay seemed like as good a way as any to take like a 17-hour nap. But, but here's why I bring up good old Bobby Ross. There's something about his show that I just find entrancing. Like there's always this point in his paintings where literally everything he makes just looks like a mistake. 
Like he uses his, his paint brushes and his little like putty knife thing and just starts smearing stuff here and there and all around. And for like half of the episode, it's just, it looks like nothing. You're like, what is this? I don't understand what this thing is. But then all of a sudden, he makes a little smear here and, and throws a little white paint onto a dark smudge there. And, and all of a sudden, you're looking at a very distinct landscape. And whenever I see that, my, there's that part of my brain that's just like, nice. <laughs> and so as, as Rich mentioned last week, and as we've already mentioned here this morning, the task ahead of me feels a little daunting. We have seven chapters and a very optimistic 40 minutes. My fear, though, is that we'll get to the end of this thing, and you won't see the landscape. My fear is that we'll get to the end of this, and it never stops looking like a black blob, that you won't be able to see the, the textures, the contrast of light and dark, the, the glory. My fear is that you won't make out the little tree in the very center of the thing that brings the whole picture together. And so let me just at least try to telegraph for you what I'm going to try and do today. Today, we're going to look at God's mission, his gracious plan, his eternal desire to dwell among his people. Today we're going to talk about how the presence of God should thrill your heart as a believer, move your heart to partner with God in his plan, and overwhelm you with a sense of God's love. Today, I hope to paint a picture that will change you. And if I fail in this mission, then I want you to walk away from here with this and this only. God's presence with us, Jesus' presence with us, will change us. So that's that. So let's look into Exodus. Um, you know, the, the book of Exodus, like when you think about the book of Exodus, typically you think of this epic narrative, the the salvation of the people from the oppression of Egypt and all those sorts of things, the parting of the Red Sea, the miracles in the wilderness, all that sort of stuff. What people don't really tend to think about is that basically the last half of the book is concerned with instructions on how to build a tent and then further just basically how people followed the instructions to build a tent. <laughs> like, like after, after ascending this cosmic mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive God's word for his people, the story comes to a grinding halt. And in chapters 25 through 31, we receive instructions on how to build a tent, how to build this tabernacle for God's presence. There's like this little brief but significant interruption in the midst of that where the people are like, oh, hey, Moses, uh, while you were gone, we accidentally broke the first two commandments and maybe made a golden calf and we might have started worshiping it, which is a very important part of the story. But then in chapters 35 through 40, we're back to the tent. <laughs> so this is basically like, well, this part of the Bible is not a page turner. Okay, But like, like any great artist who's patiently, meticulously, and carefully, and purposefully working his canvas, what God is doing for us here is setting up for us what is arguably one of the most significant ideas in all of the Bible, and thus one of the most significant ideas 
in all of creation. The space that God devotes to this tent tells us something, right? Like, are you guys with me on that? Okay, so what is it telling us? And what I want to do today is tell you what this is telling us by trying to paint a picture for you in your imagination, to paint actually seven pictures for you as we go through these seven chapters. So um, pray for me. Uh, picture one, the tabernacle is a portrait of the cosmos. Now, it's, it feels a little bit to me like I'm cheating here because I usually don't like using visual references, but I'm going to actually have Matt pull a slide up for us. So you have at least some accurate visual idea of what we're talking about here. Now, this, this whole structure here that you see, this, this representation is roughly the quor a quarter the size of a, of a football field. Like you, you cut a football field in half this way and in half that way, and then this little quadrant here, that's about the size of what you're looking at here. Now, students of the Bible have noticed the parallels between the tabernacle and the biblical description of creation for about as long as they've had a Bible to study. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 78, verse 69, that he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. G.K. Beale's incredible book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, which I spent way too much time reading this last week, it describes it like this for us. He says, All three parts of Israel's tabernacle symbolized a major part of the cosmos. One, the outer court represented the habitable world where humanity dwelt. Two, the holy place was emblematic of the visible heavens and its light sources. Three, the holy of holies symbolized the invisible dimension of the cosmos where God and his heavenly hosts dwell. And so you examine the artist's work here. You walk through and you see the fine linens and the skins used to convey the dramatic colors of the heavens at the entrance of the courts. You see that these same colors are employed for the tent structure itself, that the veil curtain that separated the holy of holies is also made of these same colors. You see the more earthly fabrics used to enclose the courtyard, where we see the bronze altar and where they perform the sacrifices, and the bronze basin where the priests were to cleanse themselves before entering the holy space. Let's pull up that next slide. Thank you. If you're fortunate enough to be one of the priestly workers, after cleansing yourself from the dirt of the common world, you enter into the holy space inside the tent. There, you no longer see the common metals like bronze that you saw on the outside, but as you walk into God's space, you're met with gold and silver instruments. The gold table of bread, the gold lampstand, the gold incense altar, the gold rings and rods holding the cosmic curtains. Every facet is designed to evoke a sense of the cosmic significance of what is taking place. The curtains represent the heavenly skies, and they're the gold, their starry hosts. And you recognize, all of a sudden, that you're standing on the precipice of heaven and earth. And so you proceed further in, but only so far. Because as you progress through this holy space, you're confronted with another curtain. This one is embroidered with angelic beings who protect the most sacred space from defilement. There's only one person allowed in here, and him but once a year on the Day of Atonement in order to purge this space of its defilement. 
We read about the priests, the high priests, their clothing, their preparation for the sacred space in Exodus chapters 28 and 29. And as this portrait, this particular priestly portrait, is painted for us, you notice a few things. First, you notice that the priest himself actually looks a lot like a king. You might say a, a royal priest. And you think of Exodus 19.6. I've called you to be a royal priesthood. But in addition to his royal robes, you notice something else. You notice that he's actually dressed a lot like the tabernacle itself. Not only are his clothes made of the same fabrics and colors as the holy tent, but he's also decorated with all these precious stones and jewels. And they're the type of thing that you actually haven't noticed in your Bible really much since page two. And then as you stare at this picture, it begins to dawn on you. The smudges and smears begin to take shape. And all of a sudden, you're looking at a very distinct landscape. The symbolism of the fruits sown into the priest's clothes, the water, the bread, the heavens, the earth, this tabernacle, this priest, this whole system is designed not just to show you creation generally, but to show you the Garden of Eden specifically. The Edenic ideal. A place where God dwells in perfect harmony with his creation. A place where he walks with his people. He walks with his image bearers, those who rule as royal priests. This whole structure, this whole tabernacle system is painting humanity's cosmic calling to dwell in God's space, to do God's work, to be kings, queens, and priests over the created order. And here, I start to become a little self-conscious because we live in a culture that doesn't, one, really understand these ideas, and two, even come anywhere close to accepting them. To suggest to a modern person that God created humans so that they could enjoy his presence and have a relationship with him sounds far too simplistic and far too fanciful. It's fanciful, rather, for modern men and women. In fact, and this depresses me to no end, even in the church, there are those of us who get so bogged down by the troubles of this world, by the draining circumstances of day-to-day -day life, that these Edenic realities never really cease to be anything besides blobs and smears. And so maybe my main point of application here is that you should not be afraid to believe differently. In fact, you should embrace it. God's whole plan here is to create a distinct people who will mediate his presence to the rest of the earth. The temples of the surrounding ancient cultures actually have a lot of similarities to what we read here, and I read way too much about all of those as well this last week. One of the more enjoyable tidbits, though, that I ran across in my studies had to do with the sacrifices that Moses describes for us in Exodus chapter 29, verse 13. You can look at it if you want. I'm just going to reference it here. So apparently, and this, this isn't in the Bible. This is just from my studies. Apparently, all the ancient pagan religions around, they, kinda, they had like these entire instruction manuals about how to read kidneys and livers and other precious organs in order to discern the will of God. Now, suffice it to say, this did not always create a very crisp portrait of the divine will. 
But these organs, like these livers and kidneys and things like that, they were precious and they were thought to carry this divine mystery that could inform these ancient pagans. And God basically tells Moses in Exodus chapter 29, like, yeah, you know, you know those organs, those things that like everyone else around you thinks are super important? Burn them. Just love that. <laughs> love that. <laughs> What's funny about that actually is that today I, I actually work with people who spend their time reading livers and kidneys. They're, they're, they're called pathologists. Um, I don't, I don't, to be clear, I don't think God is upset with their vocation. Um, but in all seriousness, like when it comes to living this, this distinct life, uh, I do tend to think often of my professional peers. As many of you know, I've worked in the, as a, like a scientific researcher for the last 15 or so years. Um, and I've worked in that space with like some pretty phenomenal Christians. And I've also worked with some pleasant and some not so pleasant atheists. And I've worked with many other people who live by an entirely different story altogether, just like many of you with your coworkers. Now, many of my peers and colleagues live by a different story. They live by a different belief system than the one that I inhabit. Now, I've never been very good at sharing my faith. That's just like to confess it to all of you. And, and oftentimes, this is on account of like my own sense of intimidation because I tend to find myself thinking that I'm the dumbest guy in the room on a pretty consistent basis. And this is, this is not to just be self-deprecating, so don't like come up later and tell me that, you know, you're actually pretty smart because I happen to see myself as either a really dumb smart guy or a really smart dumb guy which makes me either humbly arrogant or arrogantly humble. <laughs> that's me. <laughs> but but that's, that's all besides the point. Because the point here is that I'm, I'm often intimidated and afraid. So if given the opportunity, like will I, will I start my gospel witness to convince an atheist coworker about the historicity of the first three pages of my Bible? Probably not. I'm just going to be honest about that. But I would love to point out to them that in spite of the fact that some of them believe that they live in a universe that's essentially ruled by the forces of chaos and chance, that they still act like, like the things that they do matter, right? They still act and live and pursue their careers in such a way so as to achieve some sort of ideal, to create some sort of order, whether just for themselves personally or like many of them, especially in my field, for creation and humanity generally. And I would love for them to just think through why anything they do matters. Because if we're just ruled by the forces of chaos and chance, why do we get so upset when chaos and chance rear their ugly heads? You know, I believe that these things matter because we live in a world that matters. I believe we do these things, as I've said from up here before, because we're haunted by these echoes of Eden and we're driven by a hunger for heaven. The things we do matter because there is a reality out there that is more real than the reality that we inhabit right now. And maybe that could be a good place to start a conversation. And maybe it's something that you can meditate on yourself. So do not be afraid of the fact that you have a defense for these things. Lean into them with your neighbors, your family, your friends, your coworkers. As 1 Peter 3.15 tells us, be prepared to give a reasoned defense for the hope 
that's inside of you. And it's often like a, a deafness to these echoes or a numbness to the hunger of heaven. It's the blurring of these realities that really creates so many of the problems in our world. And I fear actually may be the cause of some of your misery today. Yet in some ways, it makes sense that there's a blurriness here when we look back on Eden. Because even if you intellectually deny the reality of Eden, you still hunger for it all the way down to your bones. We all feel, to some conscious extent or another, the loss of the clear picture, the loss of the deep reality we long for, the loss of beauty itself. So we go to picture two, the tabernacle as a portrait of redemption, and really a portrait of Sinai. So this does, in fact, point us to the other picture that the tabernacle points for us, and that's the picture of redemption and salvation. <clears throat> and I'll try to be quicker here. Many of the commentators I consulted for this study have pointed out that um, really what's, what's happening with this tabernacle is a re-representation not only of Eden, but of the Sinai experience itself. The Israelites, after their rescue from the oppressive forces of Egypt, they find themselves encamped at the base of Mount Sinai where they receive the Ten Commandments. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And if we're looking at our painting now of the original tabernacle, our artist zooms out a bit for us, and we see a mountain behind the tabernacle. And just like how the tabernacle had its three layers of increasing holiness with greater and greater restrictions to access, so does the cosmic mountain. We read back in Exodus chapter 24, verse 1, that all the people were invited to stand at the base of the mountain where they offered sacrifices. But then there was a smaller group, the 70 elders and Aaron and his sons and Moses who were allowed to come up and worship from afar while they ate their, their uh, mystical, mystical meal on a mountain. Is that what it was last week? Yeah. They saw God from a distance. And then it was Moses alone who could ascend all the way up to the top of the mountain and draw near to God. Now, these three groups correspond to the three regions of the tabernacle. I'm sure many of you have already put that together at this point, but let's zoom further back in on the tent, and I'll be quick. We see the courts where any of God's people could offer their sacrifices, the holy place where only the priest could enter, and then the holy of holies where Moses, as long as he's on the scene, is able to go in there and hear from God directly. But then after that, it's Aaron and the high priest who go in but once a year, and like I mentioned earlier, on the Day of Atonement only. In this holy place, to quote one commentator, you have the bread of the presence resembling the mystical meal on the mountain, the bread and the wine situated as they are just outside the most holy place, a continual reminder of the covenant that the holy God who is located behind the curtain just several feet away has made with his people. You have the altar of incense that filled this holy space with the most holy cloud of smoke that you've ever seen, just like the cloud of smoke and fire that descended on Mount Sinai. In the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant with the two angelic cherubim on it were representative of the footstool of God's throne. The imagery here reflects the experience of Moses, Aaron, and the elders when they saw in Exodus 24, verses 10 through 11, Rich talked about this last week, they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. They saw through the Ark of the Covenant, God seated on his throne. And beyond that, 
after Moses is done talking with God from atop the mountain, he will speak to him, as I mentioned, in the Holy of Holies, where it says in Exodus 25, 22, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So I bring all this up, all this up, to illustrate for you the fact that the reason that the Edenic experience seems like such a blurry memory to us is because we lost it, and we've been lost from it. And the overarching story of the Bible is that we need a salvific experience to restore us to the joys of Eden. What up, buddy? <laughs> it's okay. That's not like the most holy place, so he's allowed access. <laughs> and thus you have the story of God's rescue, God's salvation of his people from their slavery in Egypt. For the Israelite, the tabernacle is a continual portrait and reminder of what happened at Mount Sinai. It points you to the salvation of your oppression, which points you to the ultimate cause of your oppression, your dejection, your affliction, and that is your separation from God. So picture three, the heart of God. When you think of all the things that God could have communicated to us, or all the things he could have said in the space of 13 chapters, instructing us again on how to build a tent, and then telling us how someone else built a tent, it's reasonable to ask why he devotes so much real estate to this tabernacle. And what it comes down to is that it tells us what God's original desire was for humanity. The overarching story of the Bible is that God wants to dwell with his people. In a way, asking the why questions of God can be a pretty fruitless exercise. Like, we, like why choose Israel? Well, we read in Deuteronomy chapter 7, a little later on in this story, that God chose them because he chose them. Why does God love them? He loves them because he loves them. Why did God create humans? Well, we read in Genesis 1.28 that he created these little image bearers because he wanted them to rule over and bless the created order. Why? Well, apparently, God likes creating partners that he can work with. Why does he like doing that? Because he likes doing that. I don't know. <laughs> the point here is that God, in the overflowing abundance of his love, he creates, he partners with, and he trains people for glory. He places them in a garden on top of a cosmic mountain, a place where heaven and earth meet in order to teach them about the abundance of his generosity. They live in a world full of yes. He trains them to live in his presence because in his presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And it's those who dwell in that presence who can extend the blessing to the rest of the created order. This is what it means when God calls his people a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. Their calling and their identity is that they are God's covenant partners. And when they dwell in his presence, it will expand the blessing. It will expand the reality of Eden, the glory of God, and it will expand the joy of his people. And so for this wandering and dispossessed people group, the God of the universe joins himself to them to the extent that he is willing to live in a tent 
for as long as they are a wandering and dispossessed people. And this is a picture of what God's heart is like. And yet, we move to picture four, how the tabernacle falls short and how we fall short. And yet, even ancient people knew that this tent doesn't do the divine artist justice. Justice. Centuries after God saves his people, he gives them his law, he plants them like a gardener in the promised land, and he assigns them the task of being a kingdom of priests. And they decide, now that we're here, it's time to upgrade God's living space. And so on top of another cosmic mountain, Mount Zion in Jerusalem now, King Solomon builds a temple for the divine presence. Everything about this structure is bigger and grander. All the Edenic imagery is painted with more brilliant colors, carved out of more impressive stones, and covered with more gold and jewels. But the limitations of the tabernacle are not actually about the limitations of the tabernacle. Solomon, when the temple is complete, he's praying in 1 Kings chapter 8, in verse 27, he says this, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. What can contain the Creator? What in all of creation could contain the Creator? Even back on Mount Sinai, like again, it was, it was only Moses who could go up to the top of the cosmic mountain to meet with God. And you know what? The rest of God's people, they were like, that is fine with us because it looks terrifying up there. <laughs> like, you, you go, Moses. Send us a letter, maybe. Because as it turns out, God's dwelling place, with, it, with its gradations of holiness, its separation, its, its priestly system, it's not only a picture of God's presence with his people, but it's also ironically and simultaneously a picture of his separation from his people. But why this separation? You know, when God wants to paint a picture of the severity of our separation from him. He paints with blood. Now, there's simply not enough time to talk about the sacrificial system described for us in the consecration of the priests in chapter 29, let alone to draw out the whole sacrificial system of Leviticus. But let's just say it like this. The Bible paints a picture of God that is all-powerful. He speaks at the dawn of creation, and everything listens. He speaks to the skies, and they bring forth light. He speaks to the land, and it forms mountains. He speaks to the waves, and they stand still. And then he forms humanity, and he invites humans into this world full of yes, and he gives them one no. Do not eat from that tree. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is my prerogative. That's the space I occupy. And so what do they do? They say, we're going to go with the no. We're going to choose the no. What happens when creation rebels against the creator? Well, it ought to be decreated. Just say that. Or, to put it in the words of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. There is warning after warning in this passage that God gives to the priests about not approaching his presence in an unworthy fashion and in an unatoned for state. The blood sacrifices are a perpetual reminder of our separation from the Holy of Holies, from our separation of God himself. 
And so the tabernacle falls short because we fall short. We wanted to be the God of God. And Yahweh will not be approached by his usurpers lightly. It's a limitation perhaps best illustrated by again thinking about the pagan temples of the surrounding cultures. Now, I mentioned earlier that there are a lot of similarities between the tabernacle and the temple systems of, of all these ancient pagan peoples. Um, for instance, like even, even the Egyptian, like they just left Egypt, but even in the Egyptian temple system, there's garden imagery, there's different gradations of holy space, and there's all this other symbolic messaging that's really similar with the tabernacle system. But, but now think with me here. What's one big difference between this tabernacle and all these other temples? At the center, in the most holy space of all these other temples, there sat an image of an idol. Because what are these false gods, if not the embodiment of our desire to attain Eden with our own hands, on our own terms? Every time we try to create Eden on our own terms, disaster ensues. The idols of money, sex, and power have left a wake of destruction across human history. The, and ultimately, all these God replacements will fail you. Your desires to achieve or accumulate or avoid, whichever, whichever one of these things you think will provide you salvation, it will fail you. And even if you're one of the very few people across human history whose plans and schemes actually work out for them, don't forget the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Alternatively now, we go back to the tabernacle. What's in the most holy space of the tabernacle? It's the Ark of the Covenant. Thank you. The Ark of the Covenant. It is a box that contains the Word of God for His people. His Word is the place where He reveals Himself most clearly. And so Isaiah, echoing Solomon's prayer some centuries later, in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, he says this, Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So let's pause for a brief point of application here. Do you know that God's living presence is mediated for us here? Like this, this book, filled with morally questionable characters, filled with the heroic saving acts of God toward an unworthy people, filled with instructions on how to build a tent, this sacred space is where we behold God's presence, and especially on a Sunday morning when we open it up together. So one of the best things actually that has happened to me during this last year is the recovery of the early morning hours and my time in the Word. Uh, my wife has actually been phenomenal about this, far better than I have. This is, this is something that like I had in my life at one point, I kind of just, it fell on the back burner and then I turned the back burner off, I guess. Uh, so I've wanted it back in my life 
for years. And now I have it in large part because of my wife's example, but also very much because of Colt Marquardt. Um, so maybe my point of application here is, is not so much that you guys just read your Bibles more because I, you could get that literally any Sunday you come here, but maybe my point of application is get you a Colt Marquardt in your life. This guy calls me super early in the morning after he's already been awake for an hour, by the way, to make sure that I drag my lazy self out of bed so that I can encounter God in his word. So I challenge you to find someone, to surround yourself rather, with people that bear the artistry of Eden. Find yourself someone who has a contagious zeal, someone who looks like they've been in the presence of God, and someone who beholds the presence of God in his most holy word. Which leads us actually to our fifth picture here. Jesus, God's dwelling. These last three pictures will be rough outlines at best. God's presence is mediated to us through his word. That's what we just got done talking about, right? But ultimately, even this idea is painting a portrait of an even greater reality. It's the word become flesh that dwells among us. We read in the introduction of John's gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then you go down to verse 14, and it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the Word, and the Word is God, and the Word became flesh. And, you know, many, I think we've talked about this here before, but many of you know that the word here for dwelt in John 1.14, it's, it's like taking the word tent and turning it into a verb. There's not an English thing that does that. So, you know, oftentimes you'll hear us up here say the word tabernacled among us, because it's actually a pretty nice literal translation of it. The word tabernacled among us. You know, the echoes of Eden have always provoked the hunger for heaven to come back down to earth. And this is, this is actually what is symbolized by the tabernacle, the desire for heaven and earth to rejoin. That's what the t- tabernacle symbolizes, but it's realized in Christ. Christ is the heavenly reality. So the implications of this are huge. I mean, just think of the life of Jesus. Everywhere he went, the beauty and the glory and the healing of Eden followed him. He restored health to the sick, sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He raised the dead back to life. He is the very presence of God. He is the ultimate Eden. And when Jesus challenged all of our attempts to gain Eden by our own devices, on our own terms, what did we do? We crucified him. Our idolatry, our sin, our rebellion, our self-seeking, our false Edens crucified the Son of God. Now I mentioned in our last picture that when God wants to show us the seriousness of our sin, he paints with the blood of animals. You know, when God wanted to show us the seriousness of his love for us, the seriousness of his desire to live with his people, his seriousness about the removal of our sin, his seriousness when it comes to our forgiveness and our redemption, 
he paints with his own blood. Jesus was taken away from the temple. He was taken away from the cosmic mountain. He was taken away from God's presence as our substitute. He was exiled from the presence of God so that his broken body, so that his death could welcome us back in. In Matthew 27, 51, when Jesus, the true and better temple, dies, the cosmos shake. The earth quakes and breaks. The veil of this old creation, the veil that separated the holy of holies from the rest of the the temple, was torn in two from top to bottom, not only granting access to the presence of God for anyone who approaches Jesus, but also unleashing God's sacred presence from its confined space within the temple in order that he might redeem the heavens and the earth. Yeah, amen, brother. And when Jesus fulfilled his promise to rebuild the temple of his body three days later, his resurrection was the beginning of the end of the world as we know it. Which leads us to the newest picture of God's dwelling place, the church. God's people are now his dwelling. For those who unite themselves to Christ through their believing loyalty, he sends his spirit, his presence, and his new life into them. The New Testament is filled with comparisons of the temple and the church and believers and all that sort of stuff. But let me just make one comparison here because, again, we're running short on time. Um, Exodus 31, we're given a picture of these two skilled workers, Bezalel and Oholiab. God fills them with his spirit so they can participate in the, in the building of God's dwelling place. You know, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul, you know, the, the apostle to the rest of the world, Paul talks about his mission to see people come to Christ, and he talks about his mission to build up the church of God using, of all things, garden imagery. I planted Apollos waters. God gives the growth. And then he shifts, as you might anticipate someone who studies his Bible all the time, from a garden to a temple. And he uses the words that reflect Exodus 31 and these two skilled workers when he calls himself a skilled master builder. And he talks about laying a new foundation by proclaiming the new temple that is Christ. And so what's the point here? Well, there's two things I want you to walk away with. The first is that just like how the Spirit hovered over the face of the deep at the dawn of creation in Genesis chapter 1, this same Spirit, which has largely been absent in the biblical narrative up to this point, this Spirit now fills Bezalel and Aholiab to prepare the place for God's presence. And this is a shadow of how God fills his people today, how he fills you and me with his spirit in order to help us build his new temple, his new creation, as we labor under the new covenant inaugurated by the forgiving blood of Jesus. And the second thing is honestly longer and more confused because that's where I find myself today. Because if you want to, you know, if, if you think that the, the idea of a tabernacle paints a blurry portrait of the presence of God, look at people. <laughs> like, it, like, look at the church. I mean, I, I love the church, but it, the picture's real blurry right now. And I'm not talking about you guys. Like, actually, I'll, I'll just front load this. Like, I, I love 
that we can get together like this. I love that we're back together. I love that the rhythms of life are returning so that we can be around each other and care for each other and love each other well. It's not in the notes, and I, shouldn't, I should not deviate from the notes. <laughs> but folks, okay, I love the church, but it crushes my heart on a regular basis, okay? We are God's representatives. We are his royal priesthood. We are these living stones being built into a dwelling place for God. We are the new creation. We are the living sacrifice. We are, to put it bluntly, important to God's purposes. And in spite of this fact that we so often miss the mark when it comes to representing God well to the rest of the entire planet, he still intends to use us. God still fills us with his spirit. God still wants human partners. He's wanted them from the get-go. He uses the Israelites to, to bring the building materials like we read about at the beginning of our time here today. Uh, you can read in Genesis chapter 30 that God actually brings the whole community into it, not just the people with the, with the fancy gold and stuff, but he institutes this census tax indicating, and it's the same for everybody, for rich and poor alike, because the rich get no more of God and the poor no less of him. Like, he, you can read about how, I mean, the, the skilled laborers, everyone participating in this thing. Similarly, he uses you and me today to prepare his eternal dwelling place. The prophet's vision of the temple, as you read it unfolding in the scriptures over and over again, is one that grows and grows and grows outside of its original boundaries. We are that temple as we spread the good news about Jesus. And so I look at the church today, the church generally, divided as it is, morally compromised, politically bamboozled by hucksters on both the left and the right, so often concerned with their own Edenic vision of comfort and prosperity and ease that they'll hardly, they're hardly ever prepared to make the sort of sacrifices that Jesus demands of us. And I look to God and I say, can you, can you please change us? Like, this is your plan. Like, you, you know that, that my heart aches regularly over the state of the church. God, you know how it pains me to see the world gripped by the forces of chaos and despair, and I see your church apparently just going right along for the ride. You know how I want to see your presence burst forth out of this place and revive entire churches and entire cities and entire cultures. You know the church that you have to work with. You know you've done this in the past with far greater challenges than what we have now. And yet you also know how exhausted your people feel. And so anyway, I guess my point here is that you have a role to play in this mission. I urge you, commit to a church. If you're committed to this church, join a life group and figure out what your role is in this plan. If you're in a life group, dial in even more. This is God's mission to the rest of the world. Last picture, rest. Um, I'm, I'm way too long. Uh, okay, I mentioned exhaustion. Anyone else there right now? Like, not because of me, but like just... <laughs> All right. Let me, let me end with this last picture. 
Moses is doing something else in these chapters to show us that God is instituting a new creation through his redeemed people. Much like the creation account has seven days in which God commands the created order to take its form, we have seven divine speeches throughout these chapters. It says, the Lord says to Moses, the Lord says to Moses, the Lord says to Moses. You guys can look it up later. The seventh divine act of speech in these chapters is with respect to the, te- the regulations of the Sabbath. This is not by coincidence. The original creation culminated with the seventh day where God steps back, looks at what he's done, says that it's very good, and enters into his seventh day rest. The seventh day is the only day in the creation story without a morning and an evening. It is the place of perpetual rest. It was supposed to be the place that we inhabited with God, and it stands today as the eternal invitation to return to God and partner with him and enter into his rest. The tasks ahead of us are daunting. And unless you've experienced the rest that comes from the presence of God, I don't know how you'll make it. When I introduced Emmy to Bob Ross, I was honestly hoping for a nap. It didn't happen because she's three, or was three at the time. And apparently the lo-fi funny-looking guy just didn't really do it for her. I can't even achieve simple rest by myself. There's one instrument I've neglected this whole time that I've actually wanted to put into every single one of these pictures, and so maybe you can backload it now. It's the lampstand. The lampstand is a picture of the tree of life. This is an image of God's blessing to the world. The tree of life disappears from the biblical story after the exile from Eden until we find it again in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 22. But to get to this tree of life, to get to the source of blessing, you must look to Jesus and his tree of death. You must stop trying to take from the tree of life on your own terms and recognize that it's the work that he did on his tree that gives you rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, says Jesus, and I will give you rest. This is the picture of God's rest. This is the picture of God's presence. This is the picture of our ultimate reality. And today, we see this picture as through a mirror dimly. But there's coming a day when we will see it face to face. And until then, with God, there's always more to see. There's always greater colors to behold. There's always more of the cosmic mountain to climb. And there's greater rest to enjoy. And so what else can I say other than to invite you into his tabernacle? and invite you into this rest. Let's pray. God, please use these words, please use your word, actually, more than anything else, to create a restful presence in your people now. And grant us, I pray, faithfulness to you, first and foremost, a deep love for Jesus, a deep sense of his love for us, and a commitment to partner with you and see your mission go forth. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.